Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 46, Bella Vesa Accords for Kaufman de Kraftwerk. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Irons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each episode, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Sell when we sell. Dream of the land of chocolate when we dream of the land of chocolate. And today I'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 11, Burns Verkaufen der Kraftwerk. And just let me get an apology of my terrible German accent. Definitely got a touch of, hey, fun boys, get a room about it. Mm. Can't think what 31 season popular culture juggernaut I picked up that accent from. (laughs) Anyway, that was first shown on December the 5th, 1991, two weeks after the last episode aired. And I've reached a bit of a milestone as I'm going to embark on a double header about the end of the Soviet Union. This week, I'm going to be talking about the signing of the Belaveza Accords, the protocols that signalled the end of the Soviet Union and the establishment of its successor, the Commonwealth of Independent States, the CIS. They were signed on the 8th of December 1991, three days after Burnsburg-Kaufen de Kraftwerk first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. So, the episode first aired on December the 5th, 1991, but Gareth, I hear you cry. What was the UK number one at that stage? Well, it's a new number one that week. It's a live version of Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me by George Michael featuring Elton John, but absolutely forget about all of that forever, because peaking at number seven this week, it smells like teen spirit. Yes, it's Nirvana! Classic lineup, Kurt Cobain, guitar and vocals, Chris Novoslik bass, and after a number of different drummers, including <clears throat> Dale Crover, better known for his work with the Melvins, Chad Channing, who was on the band's first album, 1989's Bleach, released on the legendary Sub Pop record label, and Dan Peters, who drummed on the single Sliver and is better known as Mud Honey's drummer, they had Dave Grohl on drums, formerly of Scream and now of every band ever, including... Foo Fighters, Queens of the Stone Age, Probot, The Backbeat Beatles, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Prodigy, Killing Joke, Tenacious D, Them Crooked Vultures, Juliet and the Licks, Nine Inch Nails, and, of course, Dave Bowie and the Dave Bowie Band. If you haven't guessed, I'm quite keen on Nirvana, (laughs) Um, so this is a bit of a milestone for me. I don't want to make this all about Dave Grohl, but I did find another great Grohl fact whilst researching this. So, on November the 23rd, 2002... He replaced himself on top of the Billboard Modern Rock chart. When Nirvana's final recorded song, You Know You're Right, was replaced by All My Life by Foo Fighters. Then a week after All My Life was knocked off, so there was something else there, I couldn't be bothered finding out what, No One Knows by Queens of the Stone Age went to number one, which also features him. (laughs) So between October the 26th, 2002 and March the 1st, 2003, Dave Kroll was number one for 17 of 18 successive weeks as a member of three different groups. Fantastic. Anyway, Nirvana, which is what I'm meant to be talking about, formed in Aberdeen, Washington in the late 80s. They're at a bit of a crossroads here, having released and toured Bleach as an act which was unsuccessful in global terms, but actually didn't do that badly for a punk act. 
um, which is how they saw themselves at the time. Sonic Youth, who had a, a similar aesthetic but really quite different music, had signed a major label deal with Geffen Records, and Nirvana did the same. They apparently received better offers financially from other major labels, but the Geffen contract offered greater creative control. The album Nevermind, on which Teen Spirit is the opening track, was recorded at the legendary Sound City Studio in Los Angeles with producer Butch Vig, later the drummer for Garbage, and also the world's number one Shakespeare impersonator. He is the very image of England's greatest playwrights. Uh, Andy Wallace was later brought in to mix the album, and the band weren't happy with the commercial sound he gave them. And I completely agree, the bass is nowhere in the mix. While researching the album Meantime by Helmet for another of my projects, which is Code Break Album Club, which you can check out on YouTube, I found out that Steve Albini was so annoyed by Wallace's mix of that album that he made it a condition of working on Nirvana's next album that the record company could not get Wallace to remix it afterwards. So they got Scott Litt to do that instead. Anyway, the polished album sold 7 million in the US and 30 million worldwide as punk finally broke in 1991 and 1992. Grunge became a thing and bands that had originally been ahead of Nirvana in the pecking order, such as Soundgarden, Alice in Chains and Mudhoney, got caught in their wake and rocketed into the public eye. The album was selling 400,000 copies a week at this stage, compared with the 250,000 in total that Geffen had hoped for. Largely thanks to this single and its video, which was all over MTV. It absolutely caught the mood of the times and made its way to the ears of, well, me. And set me on a path through music that has been a wild ride every step of the way. Thank you, Nirvana. And that really shows where we are musically now, because we've got to Nirvana. We've got to, um, we've got to Smells Like Teen Spirit. So that's where we are now. We're in a major era of 90s music. We've got it all to come. Britpop's coming up. Ah, it's my glory days, Tom, my glory days. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, and, of course, it's going to provide many contrasts on the playlist as well, the Spotify playlist, if anybody wants to tune into that. Because this is this is going to come straight after that alternate track that we were discussing last week. Yeah, I haven't heard that yet. I can't wait to put it on shuffle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, world in union. Oh, I have many regrets about that one, but you can't ignore it. That's the thing. That's the thing. So the episode had a US viewership, uh, a Nielsen of 12.6, which is approximately 11.6 million homes. It was 38th in the ratings, second in its time slot after the name redacted show, but again, the highest rated show on Fox. The production number was 8F09, and the credited writer was one John Vitti, as we discussed way back in episode two, Bart the Storming of the Stasi HQ. The chalkboard gag for this episode is the Christmas pageant does not stink. I probably beg to differ. And the couch gag is Santa's little helper is already on the couch and goes full Cujo, scaring the family off. And what actually happens in the episode? Well... The Simpsons are going to be filled with ennui. And by the Simpsons, I mean Mr. Burns, who cries a single tear despite Smithers using a shampoo that specifically promised no more tears. The cause? Well, Snappy the Alligator gets to the root of that problem quick smart. Monty feels unchallenged and tired. And it's time to sell the nuclear plant. 
Homer accidentally stumbles into the situation by unknowingly counselling Smithers whilst trying to get a vending machine to work, so he should know that the plant's for sale. Something he either forgets or ignores when his stockbroker, whose small talks reveal he is barely clinging to life, tells him his stock in the plant has gone up for the first time ever. He immediately sells for $25, and he imagines the things he can do with his newfound fortune. Which, Tom, are what? Um, he definitely has a hot wax. I think he has a haircut. And my favourite, ooh, hammer. Absolutely. Yep, the, the three H's there, haircut, hot wax and hammer. Um, <laughs> you pay, pay a fair bit for down in Soho, I can tell you that much. But not from experience, obviously. Before he can realise his dreams, we're into an itchy and scratchy episode. House of Pain or This Old Mouse sees Itchy put a nail through Scratchy's head and use it to hang a picture of the two in happier times. <laughs> we don't see what happens next, as March has Bart change the channel to check in on the financial news, and we learn that speculation about the plant's ownership has caused the stock's value to skyrocket, and the family assume their boat has come in. This leads Bart to imagine the things he could do with $5,200. Which, Tom, are what? Oh... He wants a big monster truck thing, which he crushes cars. Um, he wants a cement mixer full of frosty chocolate milkshakes. And he wants to get a jetpack and write, eat my shorts in the sky. You are six for six this week, Tom. That's um, three, three from each list. Absolutely perfect. Meanwhile, Homer, having already spent his proceeds on a bottle of Henry K. Duff's private reserve at Moe's Tavern, encounters two German fellows at the bar who are more interested in his inside information on the plant than the American beer, which tastes to them like swill that only a swine would drink. Homer mentions that birds won't sell for less than $100 million, the one thing he does actually remember from his conversation with Smithers, but Hans and Fritz will still have enough money to buy the Cleveland Browns. I didn't know if that was a reference to real-life events, so I had a quick Google, but I can't find anything odd going on with the Browns at that stage. Homer's Hall is not the miracle his family have been waiting for and getting themselves excited about. But literally every one of his colleagues got rich and seemingly all of them bought luxury or sports cars. Apart from Carl, who brought a Porsche 911, which, like all Porsches, is a consolation car for people who can't quite afford a luxury or sports car. The only exception is Lenny, who got a huge amount of cosmetic surgery, which seems to have fixed his face into a Joker-esque smile. Burns goes to the negotiating table expecting to turn them down, but thanks to Homer, the Germans offer exactly the right sum, and soon they're being willkommened to Das Powerplant, with Quimby not missing the photo opportunity. This sends the workforce into a panic, as they expect them to bring in their own people. There's a sea of worried faces. Except for Lenny, he looks great. But the only one who needs to worry is Homer, who has absolutely no USP. Worth noting at this point that, that Lenny's cosmetic surgery wears off as well. Literally during the advert break, you, you, you have a shot. You go to adverts on a shot of Lenny with his Joker grin, and it comes back to him with his normal expression. So, um, yeah, temporary cosmetic surgery. There we go. As Burns packs up for his new life and Smithers studies sycophantic German, we get a Burns Elvis impression, and then he's off to do a lot of things that start with the letter B. Horst from HR takes the softly, softly approach with the staff, but Homer is in deep dough. And when he zones out to the land of chocolate during a free exchange of ideas, 
His fate is sealed, and he is the only worker to be laid off by the new management. The whole family pull their belts in, though Marge prefers Lisa's money-saving ideas to Bart's. And the depressed Homer makes his way to Moe's. Bart is sent to retrieve him, and for a second we think Moe has found out that he's the prank caller. Especially since he just phoned for a B.O. problem. But Moe treats him like a returning hero. Stranger still, Burns and Smithers happen to drop by the tavern after a hard day's beekeeping and discover that the working classes of Springfield no longer fear or respect Mr. Burns as he's ridiculed and assaulted. Burns resolves to get the plant back. And luckily, the Germans are desperate to sell as they've noticed the many, 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 many safety violations that have taken place under Homer's neglectful eye. So negotiations are short and successful. As the episode ends, Burns rehires Homer to keep his enemies close by. A great episode. I, I really enjoyed it. And the, the Land of Chocolate sequence is just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what this episode does for me is it challenges my conceptions of when classic Simpsons was. Because in my head, it always started about 1993. But here we are, at the end of 1991. The Soviet Union is a thing. This episode is firmly in classic Simpsons territory because the writing and the pacing are absolutely bang on. The animation is nailed down and you've got everything you want. You've got social commentary, you've got tons of jokes and it's a great episode. Being a a UK viewer, we would have got this at least a year after it was originally done. So I'm I'm guessing our, our perception of where classic Simpsons starts might be coloured by that. Possibly. Now, there are some obvious character debuts in this one. The Germans. We have Hans, who has black hair and glasses, is from East Germany and is voiced by Hank Azaria. Fritz, his business partner from West Germany, who has blonde hair and a large moustache, voiced by Harry Shearer. And Horst, white haired with a small moustache, the most approachable of the three and therefore the one assigned to be the employee liaison. He's voiced by Phil Hartman, which I didn't realise, but can really tell now that I know. Now, obviously, this episode got translated and revoiced in German for, well, Germany. And in the German version, all the characters in Springfield speak standard German, which is a form of German which was engineered to be as widely understandable as possible to speakers of different dialects. So how do you make the actual German characters stand out? They were read in different dialects. Now, I don't know which ones. I'm not exactly an uh, an expert on the German language, as you're about to find out from another piece of pronunciation I'm about to do. But I still want to mention this. I I think that's a neat little trick, and I I do appreciate the effort, quite frankly, even if I will never benefit from it. And with that, we're straight on to our Did You Knows. So did you know, Tom, that the commentary for this episode reveals the plant was originally going to be taken over by Japanese business people rather than Germans? but it was deemed to be too cliched. On a personal note, I agree, largely due to Kimatsu Motors' takeover of Herb's business in Season 2, Episode 15, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The title of this episode is apparently meant to translate to Burns Sells the Power Plant, but if that's the case, it's actually slightly wrong. I'm told that the correct way to say that, although probably about to be incorrectly said by me, is Burns Verkauft Das Kraftwerk, rather than Burns' Verkaufen der Kraftwerk. Perhaps a German-speaking listener can clue us in. 
the Land of Chocolate sequence was apparently meant to feature a road sign that said Hershey Highway. Unfortunately, the censors decided that this was an allusion to an American slang term for anal sex. What? Which I have heard used in American comedy, but I, I doubt it was meant to be that kind of reference here. <laughs> they they replaced it with a sign saying Fudge Town, which is less of an anal sex reference, just about. Oh, dear. Um, moving on, Mayor Quimby's utterance, Ich bin ein Springfielder, is yet another Quimby-based riff on John F. Kennedy, who delivered a famous speech in West Berlin, as was the style of the time, on June 26, 1963, featuring the quote, Ich bin ein Berliner. And funnily enough, I believe that speech was meant to shore up Western uh, morale against the threat of the Soviet Union. So it's a particularly apt one to be, be dropping in here. And finally, from me, Smithers is stung by several bees here without any lasting problems. But in season seven, episode 21, 22 short films about Springfield, a single bee sting puts him into apparent anaphylactic shock as he has a potentially deadly allergy to bee stings. I mean, what are we meant to believe? That these are magic bees or something? Boy, I hope. And you know the rest. Indeed. There's one thing I need to say about the Kennedy Ich bin ein Berliner speech while we're on the subject. There is this... It's almost an urban legend, but it's it's kind of not because there's this idea that he said, I am a donut. And he did and he didn't because there is a type of donut called a Berliner, as in it's from Berlin, like a Frankfurter is originally from Frankfurt and a Hamburger is originally from Hamburg. So him saying, ich bin ein Berliner, does literally mean I am a Berliner, I am a Berliner donut. But everyone would have known what he meant. The, the, you know, the people of Berlin would not be looking at each other going, what? He said he was a donut. What's he talking about? <laughs> they knew he didn't speak German. They knew what he was trying to say. It was fine. They were all smiles and sunshine, I hear. Exactly. And now, memeable moments. Yes. So I've gone for four. A lot of them we've already talked about. Uh, so I've gone for, except for Lenny, who looks great. This is the worst day of my life when he has his plastic surgery. The Land of Chocolate, which is one of my favourite little bits of animation in The Simpsons. Yeah, it's the bit where he's walking down that path and he does the thing where he sort of sticks his arms out and he has his and, and, and he's walking on point, like like on tiptoes. That only lasts a second, but it's just so brilliantly done. So Land of Chocolate for number two. Number three, I've gone for. Let me ask you this. Does your money cheer you up when you're feeling blue? Yes. And number four, ooh, the Germans are mad at me. Oh, save me from the Germans. Oh, they're so big, they're so strong. Stop it, stop it, mad. Oh, the Germans. Damn it. There you go. Memeable moments for you. Fantastic. Okay. Now, it is slightly bittersweet for me to say here comes the end of the Soviet Union because they, they've provided such great material for us over the, the course of the podcast thus far. But the nettle must be grasped. Tom, mm-hmm. take us home. Yep, yep. Well, first of two parts, you see. So so we're back in the USSR for the penultimate time. So last time we were here, it was for the attempted August coup. And we covered that in episode 35, Soviet coup. But first, let's take a look at the beginnings of the Soviet Union because its beginnings would prove to be instrumental in its downfall. 
So the Soviet Union has its roots in the Russian Empire. And by 1917, the territory of the Russian Empire was at its peak. But its continued engagement in the First World War was putting a huge strain on its people and government. And the antics of Rasputin, the mad monk, certainly weren't helping things. By February 1917, the people had had enough. The February Revolution took place and Tsar Nicholas II abdicated, ending over 300 years of Romanov rule and bringing the Russian Empire to an end. The power vacuum he left was partially filled by a provisional government, which was composed of representatives from various socialist and liberal parties. This government didn't last, and it was routed in October by the Bolsheviks, led by Vladimir Lenin, in the events of the October Revolution. It's one of the, one of the things you've got to remember whenever you talk about Russian Revolution, because there's quite a lot of them. And there were two in 1917, the February Revolution and the October Revolution. February Revolution got rid of the Tsar, October Revolution brought in the Bolsheviks. That's how that works. Listeners, always be specific about your Russian revolutions. Exactly. So, the Bolsheviks declared the Russian Socialist Federative Soviet Republic. They loved their long names. I, I don't know what's up with that. So anyway, this led to the Russian Civil War, which saw the communists, or the Reds, up against forces sympathetic to the monarchy, who were known as the Whites. The war lasted for five years, and at the end of it, the Bolsheviks emerged victorious. By 1922, communists were in charge in Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan. And we've talked a fair bit about Georgia and Azerbaijan in previous episodes. Now, those last three were lumped together as the Transcaucasian Socialist Federative Soviet Republic. And the leaders of the four republics got together and approved the treaty of the creation of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, on December 28, 1922, declaring it from the stage of the Bolshoi Theatre in Moscow. Now, I've been over the history of the USSR a fair few times on this show, so I'm going to try and avoid going over old ground too much. The important point here is that the Soviet Union was founded by Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, and the Transcaucasian Republics. By the mid-80s, so I'm skipping over all of World War II, 60s, 70s, etc., so by the mid-80s, the USSR was facing all manner of problems. The leadership of Leonid Brezhnev led to a period known as Brezhnev stagnation, where nepotism and corruption were rife. The USSR also faced huge problems with alcoholism, as we've talked about in the past. And on top of that, the Cold War was consuming a huge amount of Soviet resources, as the two superpowers raced to keep up with each other in terms of nuclear warheads. The country was pretty much closed off, with international travel being all but impossible for Soviet citizens. The state maintained control of the media and the means of production, and there was no democracy. The KGB, secret police essentially, kept a tight hold of the Soviet citizenry. By the time of the attempted August coup of 1991, huge changes were already afoot in the Soviet Union. By the mid-1980s, the nearly 20-year rule of Leonid Brezhnev had come to an end, as had the moribund premierships of Andropov and Shinenko had to get them in. Hoping the next leader wouldn't be ill and dead within a year, the Soviets turned to the much younger Mikhail Gorbachev. He began to bring in some big changes with his much-lauded policies of glasnost and perestroika. 
In a few short years, the world order of Soviet hegemony, especially in Eastern Europe, began to crumble. Gorbachev's most significant policy in this area was to abandon the Brezhnev Doctrine, which basically said that it was fine for the USSR to intervene militarily if any of the Eastern Bloc countries tried to abandon socialism. As a consequence of this, authoritarian regimes that relied on the Soviet Union for their global support no longer had that clout behind them. The revolutions of 1989 ousted various communist dictators, including Nikolai Ceausescu of Romania. See our first proper episode for more on that. In October 1989, the Berlin Wall, the very symbol of the Cold War that had stood since 1961, came down with Germany reunited the following year. Then in August 1991 came the attempted coup. The plotters were deeply unhappy with everything that was going on. Sick of the democracy, the states declaring independence and the lack of control from Moscow, they wanted to see a return to the authoritarianism of the past. The plotters, led by Gennady Yanayev, tried to sideline Gorbachev while he was on holiday in his Dhaka in Foros in the Crimea. Meanwhile, Russian President Boris Yeltsin held out in the Russian White House in Moscow. After just three days, the coup failed, the leaders were arrested, and Gorbachev returned to power. And after the coup, politics in the Soviet Union was dominated by two men. The former General Secretary of the Communist Party and current Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev, and Boris Yeltsin, the president of the Russian SFSR. Gorbachev emerged from the coup officially in power, but effectively a wounded animal, while Yeltsin was lauded as a hero who had faced down Soviet tanks. After that, things moved pretty quickly, and this is the great irony of the coup. It was supposed to stop the changes that were taking place in the USSR, but it ended up accelerating them. It caused all of the Baltic states who hadn't already done so to declare their independence. One of the things that the coup stopped was the adoption of Gorbachev's new union treaty. So by the end of the 80s, it was clear to Gorbachev and pretty much everyone that with his reforms, the USSR could not continue to exist as it had done for the past 70 odd years. Of course, federalization had its own challenges. In terms of land area, the Soviet Union was enormous, being the largest country in the world. One potential issue was religion. So the USSR practiced state atheism. So in terms of making decisions, religion wasn't really an issue. It was just something to be managed. However, the countries in the west of the USSR were predominantly Christian, whereas Central Asia, the Stans, you know, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, all those, they were mostly Muslim. In any democratic arrangement, the Christian nations feared being outvoted. Gorbachev's plan was to convert the USSR into a much looser federation where each state had a much greater degree of autonomy, with a central government headed up by a president who would decide foreign and military policies. On March 17, 1991, this treaty was put to a referendum in nine of the Soviet republics, including Russia. It passed with 76% approval. A ceremony where the treaty would be signed was scheduled for August the 20th, but of course it was called off because of the coup. Interestingly enough, the treaty would have preserved the name USSR as it would have replaced the word socialist with the word sovereign. So it would have been the union of Soviet sovereign republics. This also worked in Russian, as the name in Russian would still have been CCCP. You know, whenever you saw the Soviet Union play football in the 60s or 70s, they'd have CCCP across their, uh, across their chests, which is Russian for USSR. So on top of that, 
Gorbachev would have remained the president of it. So it would have kept Gorbachev in some sort of power. And the coup left those plans in tatters. Days after the coup had concluded, Moldova and Kyrgyzstan declared their independence and the Soviet Union finally recognised the independence of the Baltic states, bringing to a close the events of the Seeing Revolution. See episode 12, Krusty Gets the Seeing Revolution, for more on that. In Russia, Yeltsin's response to the coup was to suspend the activities of the Communist Party in Russia. Now, that was a huge step, given that the Communist Party had run the show since the inception of the Soviet Union. In fact, membership of it and paying membership fees was mandatory. And on November the 6th, Yeltsin went even further and banned the Communist Party completely. Now, the question remained as to the future of the Union, if indeed it had a future. The battles were between the central institutions of the Soviet Union, known as the Centre, and the constituent republics. While Gorbachev's power was waning, Yeltsin had his own ideas of what to do. On December 8, 1991, three days after Burns' The Kalfunder Kraftwerk was first aired, he was invited to the Viskuli estate in the Belaveza forest of Belarus. He was invited by Stanislav Shushkevich, the chairman of the Supreme Soviet of Belarus, and joining them was the Ukrainian president, Leonid Kravchuk. So the leaders of Russia, Ukraine and Belarus were there, but who was rather conspicuous by their absence? Uh, I've not heard you mention the big man himself, Mikhail Gorbachev. Exactly. Gorbachev wasn't there. So, why the leaders of Russia, Ukraine and Belarus? Well, Belarus had already issued their Declaration of State Sovereignty, issued on July 27th, 1990. Which isn't quite the same thing as declaring independence, but it sort of set them on the path to it. The leader of Belarus, Stanislav Shushkevich, had an interesting rise to power. He was an academic, a professor of physics and mathematics. His rather odd claim to fame, and this sounds like one of those Wikipedia facts, but from what I can tell it's true, is that he taught Lee Harvey Oswald Russian. Oh, yeah. yeah. You, you wouldn't really admit to that if you didn't have to, I guess. So it's... Uh, <laughs> I'm yep. inclined to believe him. Yep, and Shishkovich has claimed it himself, so I've no reason to doubt it. So apparently, after Oswald was honourably discharged by the US Marines, he defected to the Soviet Union. He spent some time in Minsk, and he learned Russian from Shushkevich. So there you are. Anyway, Shushkevich was convinced to run for the Congress of People's Deputies in 1989, and he became the chairman of the Supreme Soviet of Belarus on September 9th, 1991. So having declared independence earlier and the USSR in the middle of breaking up, Belarus was in a pretty perilous position. In fact, it had no contracts in place for the supply of oil and gas after January 1st, 1992, as all of its energy needs were supplied by Russia. As for Ukraine, it was in a similar position. The Chernobyl disaster occurred in Ukraine in 1986, and resentment towards Moscow was high. On July 16th, the Ukrainian parliament adopted the Declaration of State Sovereignty, moving the country towards democracy and independence. They also decreed that Ukrainian law took precedent over Soviet law, part of the fabled War of Laws that I've talked about before. However, Ukraine also relied on Russia for its energy supplies, so Leonid Kravchuk was also keen to speak to Boris Yeltsin. Holding the meeting in Belarus also had several advantages. Remember that in terms of size, population and power, Russia was by far the greatest nation of the Soviet Union. By having the meeting outside Russia, 
it gave the impression that this really was a joint effort and that Belarus and Ukraine were not simply acting as Yeltsin's puppets. However, officially, the three leaders couldn't do a deal between each other outside of the framework of the Soviet Union, so they came up with the following solution. Get rid of it. The logic of the leaders was as follows. Back in 1922, the Soviet Union was founded by Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and the defunct Transcaucasian Republic. As they had the power to found it, they had the power to destroy it too. Of course, Gorbachev disagreed, saying, the fate of the multinational state cannot be determined by the will of the leaders of three republics. The question should be decided only by constitutional means, with the participation of all sovereign states, and taking into account the will of all their citizens. The statement that union-wide legal norms would cease to be in effect is also illegal and dangerous. It can only worsen the chaos and anarchy in society. Which I find very interesting, because that's Gorbachev admitting that there's chaos and anarchy in society. (laughs) As the USSR was disintegrating. Anyway. So the name the leaders gave to the new union was the Commonwealth of Independent States, or CIS. The choice of this new name was very deliberate. You'll notice that it sounds and looks very different to USSR, and that was the point. While Gorbachev's new union treaty would have preserved the USSR initials, the Belobessa Accords made it clear that the successor to the Soviet Union would be something completely different. By this point, Gorbachev had little real authority left, and he was powerless to stop the Accords being signed. Of course, getting the army involved to remove Yeltsin or any of the other leaders was simply not an option, and one that Gorbachev did not even consider. By this point, the writing really was on the wall for the Soviet Union. So with the signing of the Belavezza Accords, that's the end of part one. In part two, I'll take a look at the Alma-Ata protocols, and that's the implementation of them, and the end of the Soviet Union itself. Fantastic. A long goodbye then to uh, to the USSR. And it could have all have been so different, you know, if they'd kept the kept the initials with that change of name. But, you know, that's what we're here to report, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting what happened with the coup, because I think if a coup didn't happen, then Gorbachev probably would have remained in power in some form or another. And there's one thing I didn't mention, actually, one thing that was a big part of the USSR's downfall was the war in Afghanistan. um, They went to war in Afghanistan in 1979, I think, and it consumed a huge amount of their military and resources. Um, There's a very good film about it, actually, uh, Charlie Wilson's War, starring Tom Hanks. So if people want to go and look that up, they can. It's a very good film. I really enjoyed it. Oh, okay. Uh, which of course means that now I have to do what I always do when we're confronted by a smaller Soviet country in The Simpsons and go, Belarus was featured in season 21, episode 12, Boy Meets Curl, as one of the many countries that took part in the Vancouver Winter Olympics. However, because we're coming to the end of our time with the Soviet Union, I just want to make sure I've mentioned the, the ultimate Soviet sequence in The Simpsons. Aired on March 29th, 1998, Season 9, Episode 19, Simpson Tide, in which Homer is somehow put in command of a nuclear submarine. When the UN are discussing it, the Russian delegate says the Soviet Union will be pleased to offer amnesty to your wayward vessel. To which he is asked, the Soviet Union? I thought you guys broke up. Yes, he replies. 
That's what we wanted you to think. And presses a button that restores the Soviet Union. Including his nameplate spinning round to show Soviet Union, tanks emerging into Red Square, and Lenin's corpse smashing its way out of its glass box, shouting, must crush capitalism. Which in itself is a memeable moment often used in um, in conjunction with our old friend Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> and that's the end of that. Well, except for the end of the USSR, which, as we said before, we'll tell you about a bit later. But for this episode, we're done. So don't forget, you can follow us at retrospectacus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore Retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify, which is about to have Smells Like Teen Spirit on it. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.